who were sick on their ba on their honeymoon. Aww. Yeah, that's right. All right. It's a honeymoon you'll never forget for many reasons. <laughs> okay, let's take our Bibles and we're going to turn to John chapter eight. This is the Gospel of John chapter eight. What's in his volume? And it's uh, the passage that deals with the woman caught in, in the act of adultery. And it is the most controversial passage in the Gospel of John. And you'll notice if you are using an NIV Bible or a new revised standard Bible or a new uh, American standard Bible or a Holman Bible, those kinds of Bibles, that this passage may have an asterisk next to it, or it may be placed in brackets. Some of those translations will have the this passage in smaller print, or you may find a footnote there that says that this passage was not part of the oldest Greek manuscripts. Anybody have a Bible that has an asterisk or says something like that on it? Look at that. A lot of people have that. <coughs> Now, the reason for that is that these translations, NIV, Holman, so on and so forth, uh, are based on a set of Greek manuscripts dating back to the 3rd century. And in those 3rd century manuscripts, this text is absolutely missing. Not in the 3rd century Greek manuscripts. Now, for those of you who have a King James Bible, or a New King James Bible, you're not going to usually see that bracket or that asterisk, because the King James Bible was translated from a different set of manuscripts that date to the 6th century. And that, this text, is in those manuscripts. So what you have is you have two sets of manuscripts, some of your Bibles are translated from the one set that doesn't have it in, 3rd century. Some of you have a Bible that's translated from a 6th century set of manuscripts, and it's in there. So what in the world's going on? That's, the, that's why this is a, such a controversial passage. Uh, it's interesting that according to Eusebius, who was a church historian, he says that a Papias who was a bishop in the area of Colossae and Hierapolis and that region in Asia Minor, actually mentions this passage, the story of the woman caught in act of adultery, in 130 AD. But it's not in those manuscripts in the third century. So what in the world happened to it? And that's the, the big question. It's, uh, when, when Papias mentions the story in 138 he does not locate the story in the Gospel of John. So he mentions the story, but he doesn't say it's from the Gospel of John. If I told you where he said it was from, you wouldn't believe it. It was from a book that's not part of the Bible. It's from a Gospel of Hebrews. Not the book of Hebrews, but a non-canonical book called the Gospel of Hebrews that he quotes from. And all the major scholars who study this say, well, you know, when you look at the language, the, the Greek that's used, there in this passage of only you know, 10 or 11 verses, uh, there are 16 Greek words in this passage that are not found anywhere else in the Gospel of John. 
which indicates that it probably wasn't in the Gospel of John. But those same words are found in the Gospel of Luke. So one of the theories is that it was originally in the Gospel of Luke. And for some reason, between the first century manuscripts when Luke was written, and the third century manuscripts, it was taken out by somebody who thought that it was light on sin. Because Jesus forgives this woman caught in the act of adultery, and it seems like maybe people would start sinning without thinking of the consequences. And that's just a theory. We don't know. But somewhere along the line, it ends up reappearing, and it appears in the Gospel of John. So we don't know how it got there or what the what the situation is. But uh, interesting, as I'm studying for this passage, and I go to the commentaries, all but one of my commentaries uh, said it's not part of the original text, and they didn't make any comments on it. They said nothing about it. They skipped from John 7.52 down to 8.12. I just had a gap in there. So I really had to come up with some work to figure out what this was all about. I couldn't depend on commentary. Okay, so that's why it's controversial. Well, fortunately, I'm using a New King James Bible. It's right in there, and I'm going to teach you. Okay? <laughs> so, uh, last week we looked at uh, John chapter 7, the end of John 7, and we saw that Jesus, on the final day of the Feast of Tabernacles, was teaching in the temple... And uh, it caused a great controversy, and the Jewish authorities tried to, tried to arrest him, but they were unsuccessful. He, he eluded them. And uh, so we ended up with verse 53 last week of John 7, which says something along these lines. So everyone went to his own house. And then verse 1 of chapter 8, but Jesus... Everybody went to their own house. But Jesus, where did he go? He went to the Mount of Olives. This is where Jesus often retreated when he was in Jerusalem just to get away and pray and get off the, and be with God by himself and uh, be in some silence and just try to get God's mind on things. It was a place of rest. And then usually after he would finish in the Mount of Olives, he would then go over to Bethany, which was right next door, and he'd usually stay at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. So this is where he is on the Mount of Olives. Now look at verse 2, chapter 8 and verse 2. Now early in the morning, this would be Sunday, the next day, he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. Now notice a lot of people show up shows you how popular he is with the masses, especially the pilgrims who are left over from the feast. And he takes the position of a rabbi. Rabbis would go into synagogues and temples and they would sit down and they would instruct their followers uh, while they were seated. And so that's what Jesus is doing. So here he is sitting down teaching. And while he's instructing, he's interrupted. So here comes the interruption in verse 3. Then the scribes and the Pharisees which were the Jewish leaders who were against him, brought him a woman caught in adultery. 
I don't know how common it is to catch somebody in the act of adultery, but I would say it's very rare, wouldn't you, to actually catch them in the act? Now, you have to realize that whenever, this could be a prostitution situation, because whenever you have big public gatherings, whether it's a Super Bowl or a political convention or the Olympics, or in Jerusalem it would be a feast day where a couple hundred thousand people come together, somebody else converges on the city. Prostitutes, pickpockets, and thieves. <laughs> so, it could be that this woman has been caught soliciting, or here it says, in the act of adultery. And uh, so that's possible she was a prostitute. Could be she's just a mother and a you know, wife, and she's been caught in the act of adultery. We're not sure, but they bring her to Jesus. Now, why in the world would the Jewish leaders who do not like Jesus bring her to Jesus? You'd think they would arrest her, you know, put her in jail for a while, give her a trial. Why would they even come and deal with Jesus? And, uh, but that's what they do, and we're going to discover in a moment why they do that. So now they make an accusation. Look at the end of verse 3. And when they set her in the midst, and this is this woman caught in the act of adultery. You'd say this is an unclean woman, wouldn't you? According to the Jewish standards? Where's Jesus? Would you bring something unclean into the temple? They couldn't even care less about that. They bring this unclean woman and they put her before Jesus. And then verse 4 continues. They said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now, it's not easy to catch somebody in the act of adultery. Now, I did have, I have a brother, not the one you met, but I've got a very young brother. He was off, he was at work, decided he was going to come home for lunch one day, came home for lunch, and he found his wife in bed with the policeman. Right in the act of adultery. He grabbed the guy and punched him right in the nose. The wonder he wasn't arrested and thrown in jail himself. And that was the end of his marriage. So here's an example of somebody caught in the act of adultery. Now, but it's not easy. That was such a rare situation. Uh, you know, if a spouse, a husband or wife, is suspicious that their spouse is cheating on them, sometimes they'll hire a private detective who follows the person with their camera, right? But they usually can't get inside the bedroom. Catch, they'll see them going into a hotel or something like that, you know, hoping maybe the hotel you know, shades are open a little bit and see the two people in a room. It's very rare to catch somebody in the act of adultery. One of the tricks to embarrass somebody or sideline somebody or extort money from somebody is to set them up with a prostitute. And that's where, let's say, a politician or something is at a meeting and somebody comes up to him and they start talking and they get drinks and before long, uh, you know, they're off in some place. Or actually maybe the man's sitting there and there is a message that's brought to that individual and says, you need to go to this room. And you go to that room, you know, let's say maybe the, the governor is in the hotel, he's in suite so-and-so, go in there, he wants to meet with you, 
and you're a politician, you go there, you knock on the door, and there's a prostitute. And then they take a picture of you. That's called the badger game. And it's for the purpose of embarrassing somebody or extorting. So here we have this woman. Who knows how in the world they got eyewitnesses to this, but they did. And they bring her to Jesus, and they throw her before Jesus. Now, what's the motive for all of this? By the way, they call him a teacher, didn't they? <laughs> They've called him a lot of things in the past, but it has never been a teacher. So they're sort of giving him some respect in front of the crowd, trying to get him to give some sort of answers. So here's the motive. Look at verse 5. Now Moses, they said to Jesus, Now Moses in the law commanded that uh, such should be stoned. This woman should be stoned. But what do you say? What's your opinion? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. They are trying to trap him. They're really not interested in his opinion as a teacher. They're trying to entrap Jesus so they can arrest him and put him to death. And so what they say is, Moses says she should be stoned. What do you think about that? Now we've got a real problem on our hands. Because in the law of Moses in Deuteronomy, it says if a person committed an act of adultery and they were caught, they were to be stoned. Capital punishment. But Israel isn't ruling itself anymore, is it? It's under Roman rule. <laughs> and the Roman government does not have a capital punishment for adultery. So, just like we don't have capital punishment for adultery. If you're a Jewish person, Orthodox Jew, living in Dallas, and your spouse committed adultery according to the law of Moses, what should you do? Stone. But what does the United States Constitution or the Texas law say? No, you don't stone them. So if Jesus says, well, I, I go along with Moses, then guess what? He goes against the Roman law. If he goes with the Roman law, he goes against Moses. So it's between a rock and a hard place. They're trying to trap him. All they're trying to do is trapping so they can accuse him. Right, he's not a good teacher, you know, or whatever the situation is. So look at Jesus' answer. Now that's the question. They've asked him the question. Look how Jesus responds in verse 6. But Jesus, do you see that? He doesn't fall for the trap. But Jesus stooped down and he wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. <laughs> They ask him a question, suddenly he just starts bending down and starts ignoring them. He ignores the question. Here's this woman. They slew her right in front. Here he, he just starts. Well, we don't know what he's writing. If he's ignoring her, maybe he's just doodling on the ground. You know? Some people said, well, he's listing the Ten Commandments. And, but we don't know what he did. Uh, he just starts doing this on the ground. Now, that really gets them angry. So they're not going to give up. So look in verse 7. So when they continued asking him, so he was ignoring them, and they finally just get him to the point where he rises up. He raised himself up. And he said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone first at her. Now, what's the question? The question was, Moses says she should be stoned. What do you say? Jesus doesn't answer the question. Does he? Instead, what he deals with is a very particular detail 
in the law. According to Moses, you could only condemn somebody of a capital crime if you had two witnesses, eyewitnesses. Otherwise, it was hearsay. You had to have eyewitnesses to condemn somebody of a capital crime. So they say, we've got them. She was caught right there. We got the two witnesses. According to Moses, the two people who accused the other of committing the crime were the ones who had to first throw the stone. So you'd have this person throw the stone and the next person throw the stone. Because you, know, you wouldn't want to kill somebody if you weren't sure that they committed the crime. So. And then the rest of them can do it. So Jesus says, well, okay, you want somebody to stone her? Well, get the two witnesses and let them stone her. But he adds something. What does he say? Does he say something there? But he who was without sin among you, let him throw the first stone. So Jesus says, sure, let him throw the stone, but guess what? You better make sure that the person who throws the stone is without sin. Because the wages of sin is what? Ah, you don't want to be a hypocrite. I mean, who's, we're all worthy of dying, basically, because of our sin. So if you're without sin, then let that person cast the stone. Okay. So that's how he answers it. I don't know how they felt, but then we have Jesus' nonverbal response. This is the second time of a nonverbal response. And look down at verse 8. And again, you didn't realize he did this twice, did you? And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. Now this time when he writes on the ground, it produces a result. It has a profound impact on those people. And he drives the point home. So, this time when he, he stoops down, he writes on the ground, and when it says the people are convicted in verse 9. So what is it that he writes on the ground that drives home the point of what he just said? Well, there's a lot of theories about this, but some of the early church fathers, these would be people who, you know, in the early centuries, 5th century, 6th century, 7th century, 8th century, they believed that they understood exactly what Jesus wrote down. And so I've looked at some of these theories, and uh, I've come to the conclusion that I pretty well know what Jesus wrote on the ground. Even though it doesn't say it here. In order to find out, you have to turn to the book of Jeremiah. Okay? So I want you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 17. What did Jesus write this time that had such a profound impact? And when you get to Jeremiah 17, and uh, you know that is after the Psalms, and then you go to Isaiah, and then you find Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 17. This is about Judah's sin and its punishment. This is what Jerusalem and its leaders deserve. <clears throat> and you can read the whole chapter if you want. But we're going to focus on Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 13. And see if this doesn't sound familiar. O oh Lord, the hope of Israel. Now watch this. All who forsake you shall be ashamed. 
those who depart from me. And that's what the Jewish leaders have done. They've forsaken God. They have really departed from God. Look at this. Those who depart from you shall be what? Written in the earth. Look. Written in the dust. Why? Because they have forsaken the Lord. Who? How is God described? The fountain of what? Living water. Does that sound familiar to you? That's what this whole thing's about, isn't it? Remember, Jesus talks about living water. So look at the beginning. They've forsaken God. They've departed from God. The beginning of verse 13. That's what they do. The Jewish leaders have done. This is what Jesus has done. He's written their, he's written their names in the earth. And here's the reason for it. Because they've forsaken the Lord, who's described as the fountain of living water. Now go back to your passage. And if you go back to chapter 7 and verse 37, because this is the context of what's happening here. Look what it says. This is John 7, 37. On the last day, the great day of the feast, the day before these events that we've been reading about happened, Jesus stood and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart shall flow what? Livers of water. So here we see the same language right here. These are the people, and they did they do it? No, they rejected Jesus. And in rejecting Jesus, they rejected who is God's representative. They rejected and forsaken God himself. They are guilty. Now what did he say? Let him who has no what? Sin cast the first stone. They are guilty of sins worthy of death themselves. And uh, it's possible that, you know, Jesus is bent down there and he's looked up at that guy, you know, who was, uh, maybe his name is Simon. And he said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And he reaches down and he writes, Simon, question mark. Abe, question mark. And they stand guilty. They stand convicted. We have one other account in the scripture where something was written that produced this kind of result. In the book of Daniel, remember Belshazzar's having the great feast? This adulterous type of feast? And suddenly there's a hand and it says, Meanie, Meanie, Tekel, Farson. You've been weighed in the balance and found guilty. And here's, maybe that's what Jesus wrote now. Maybe he just wrote it on the ground. Mean, meany, feckle, farsa. That's another theory. You've been found guilty. He who is without sin cast the first stone. So, so look at the result in verse 9. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, See, what he said in verse 7, he who's without sin, cast the first stone. And then he drives home the point by writing something on the ground. Then they who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one. That one sentence that Jesus said, he was without sin. And this nonverbal response silences the opponents. And they hang their head and they go out one by one. So, they had come to trap Jesus, and they got caught in their own trap. 
It's a scene that we've seen a thousand times in all those old Western television shows. Somebody's body's been arrested as a horse thief. Sheriff has thrown him in jail. And guess what? The townspeople, they don't want the guy to get a fair trial. They want vengeance. <laughs> so they form a mob at night and they come up to the steps of the jail. You've seen this. And they have their torches there. And the sheriff has to come out, doesn't he? And uh, just with a word or two, he just sort of disarms them. He shames them. He said, oh, Jake, I remember when you were, went and got drunk and you, you punched old Joe in the nose and we could have brought you in. Did I allow somebody to come and just hang you and lynch you? And Slim, how about you? <laughs> Whoever Slim is, you know. What about you, Slim? And he says about something Slim did. And Slim got off and he says, you know, and uh, you know, whoever else. And Bud, you know, shouldn't you be home with Mary and your six kids tonight? You shouldn't. What would happen if your little daughter saw you with a rope in your hand? And guess what they did? One by one, they just... <laughs> That's what Jesus does. He was like the first Western sheriff. He right? solves this whole problem. So it says, those being convicted by their conscience went out one by one. Beginning with the oldest. I guess he had more sin. <laughs> Even to the last. So, and Jesus... This is great because this is, the, this is the result of the whole thing. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing in the midst. So now here she is standing before the only one without fault. Who can rightly condemn her? Who can rightly judge her? And look what it says in verse 10. Then Jesus raised himself up. Because he's been writing. And they've all gone. And saw no one but the woman. And he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And they're all gone. These are the first words that were spoken to the woman either by the other crowd or by man, by Jesus. And Jesus now speaks to the woman. He said, where are your accusers? Has no one accused you? Where are they? And she said, look at this. No one, Lord. Is the woman caught in the act of adultery? Where are your accusers now? Is there anyone to condemn you? No one, Lord. How do you think she said that? How would you have said it if you were this woman? Would you have been excited? No one's heart. Would you have been humbled? No one. Would you have been crying? No one. Would your eyes drop? You say, no one. And then look what Jesus said. Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. And in the Greek language, the emphasis is on the pronoun I. Neither do I condemn you. The only one who had a right to condemn her because he was without fault or sin. 
doesn't condemn her. That's what the Gospel of John is all about. The Son of Man came into the world not to what? Condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. See, he's on a reclamation project. He is trying to redeem the world, not condemn the world. Neither do I condemn you. Now look at this last part of verse 11. He gives her two, co two commands that go together. Number one, go. In other words, go your way. I condemn you. Go. You know, get on with it. And number two, sin no more. Stop sinning. Stop sinning. There are a lot of people who have a false concept of God's grace. Uh, <clears throat> some people say, you know, God accepts you just as you are. And that's absolutely wrong. He doesn't accept you just as you are. He accepts you just where you are. But he doesn't leave you there. He expects a change. See, he says, go and sin no more. Notice what he doesn't say. Neither do I condemn thee. You know, it's okay. I understand the situation you were in. He doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't let her off the hook, does he? No, he doesn't say, he doesn't say don't worry, everybody sins. You just happen to commit adultery, you know? I've lied. I've done things. He doesn't let her off the hook like that. She's guilty. But he doesn't condemn her of the guilt. Of the sin. But neither does he approve the sin. That's why I said he doesn't accept you as you are. He accepts you where you are. But guess what? He doesn't approve of it. He doesn't leave you there. He says, go and sin no more. And that's the difference between tolerance and forgiveness. Tolerance says, I just accept you the way you are. It doesn't matter what you're doing. This type of lifestyle, that, what you've done here, you know, you, or whatever it is, that's tolerance. But forgiveness says, you know, I accept you where you are. Now start afresh. I forgive you. <laughs> Start over. God takes sin seriously, but he's the God of the second chance. That's great, isn't it? He says, yeah, you did wrong. Now I forgive you. I'm going to give you a second chance. Go and sin no more. Remember with the man at the pool of Bethesda when he healed that man? Do you remember what he said to the guy? It's very interesting. If you look back at uh, chapter 5, I think you'll find this very interesting. And look down at verse 14 after he heals the man. After Jesus found him in the temple, he said to him, See, you have been made well. Now, what does he say to him next in verse 14? Sin no more. <laughs> he takes care of the problem, but then he says, Sin no more. And then he actually gives a warning. What is the warning there? Lest something worse will come upon you. So, uh, what happens to this man? Remember what he does? He goes out and he sins, doesn't he? He betrays Jesus, remember? He says, I know where he is now. You can go arrest him. Yeah, and guess what? That man doesn't take advantage of the grace that God's given him, and he does go and he sins again. Now we come to this story. And this is where it ends. It's an unfinished 
story. <laughs> does the woman go and sin no more? <laughs> or does she, like the man in the pool of Bethesda, go out and commit adultery again? You know, whatever she does. See? We don't know. But this is what repentance is, and the pastor was talking about repentance. Repentance is a reorientation of your life. You've been forgiven, and now you need to change your life. You're to, to, to be obedient to God. And that's what baptism's all about. When we get baptized, we come and say, Okay, Lord, I'm a sinner. Forgive me of my sin. And then we submit to baptism, and baptism is our pledge of allegiance that we will now serve God. See, it's a second chance. And that's what Jesus wants to do. He doesn't want us just to forgive us. He wants to redeem us and reclaim us and reconcile us to God. Some of you have experienced what I'm talking about. Yeah, you mess things up in some way or another. Guess what? God's forgiven you. You went and sinned no more. And your life is on track. Aren't you glad that God is the God of new beginnings? And for this woman, here it is. An opportunity. And for each one of us, when we were forgiven, we were given an opportunity for a new beginning. Maybe you haven't taken it. Maybe you have fallen again. Guess what? He forgives you. And he'll be the Lord of the third chance. But there's a point, you know, where you just finally say, well, I'm just finished with this Jesus stuff, and you go on your way. And at that point, you sort of reach a point and never return. So this is the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery that many of our translations do not have in the Bible because they weren't in the third century manuscripts. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for a passage that is filled with truth. It's filled with life. It's filled with opportunity. It shows us your heart and your mind as a God of new beginnings a God who loves us, a God who came not to condemn us, but to deliver us from our previous lifestyles to save us. So Lord, help us to take advantage of the forgiveness that we've experienced. Help us to keep our baptismal vows. Help us, Lord, to be people that are, can indeed be called by our actions children of God. In Christ's name, amen.